The gospel reading is from Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, happy uh, fourth Sunday of Easter, everyone. I know that it's been on your calendar for months and months, and you've brought, bought new outfits, and you probably have brunch planned afterwards. It's a big deal. It's a big Sunday, right? It's not really like Easter Sunday. We don't think of this as Easter Sunday, but it's the fourth Sunday of Easter. And so we are taking the time <clears throat> after Easter Sunday to talk about the resurrection, sort of so what? Why does the resurrection matter on Sundays other than Easter? And why does the resurrection matter on a Thursday? Why does it matter on a Tuesday? How do we live out the resurrection in a way that doesn't just leave it encapsulated and captured on one particular Sunday? But if it is this sort of central idea of the Christian faith, then perhaps it should be central to the way that we go about life if we claim to believe it. And of course, it is something to be believed. One of the most crucial things, it's on the list of things that make Christianity distinctive, make it what it is, and define the faith sort of for all times and all places. And in that list, what we might call creedal Christianity, ancient Christianity, that's where in town finds its theological moorage where we celebrate our relationship with other churches all over the world that believe and claim that the resurrection is at the center of their faith. And yet, what is our experience normally of churches that have high doctrinal commitments and conviction? Often these churches feel kind of austere. They feel distant, remote, maybe inaccessible. But here at InTown... We want to try and change the dynamic somewhat that it is actually because of being theologically rooted and having theological depth, not in spite of it, that we are therefore radically welcoming and radically safe, that the doctrine of God, theology, informs the way that we operate as a church, where what is believed isn't a means of division and exclusion, but it's a means of invite, and it's a means of mercy. What so often happens is that 
these communities where doctrinal commitments are the most front and center, center thing, the statement of faith, you just keep scrolling on the website, it's never, you never get to the bottom of it. They believe so many things, and they believe all of it equally. And what happens, unfortunately, is that these doctrinal commitments take on a life of its own, of their own, and these churches tend to be inwardly focused. They tend to have a defensive posture toward the world, as if we're going to bundle the truth of God and protect it from the world, as if that's even possible. And what happens is that these churches provide essentially a a scolding, a corrective voice to the communities that they inhabit, inhabit, and they spend a lot of time standing for truth but doing it in a bunker. But then on the other hand, historically speaking, you have churches that don't talk a lot about doctrinal commitments, and it's hard to tell whether they believe anything that would be distinctively and definitively Christian. Doing that is seen as very problematic and exclusionary. And there's a seminary president that I actually follow on Twitter, and I like what she writes a great deal. But this past few weeks, uh, Nicholas Kristof on Easter Sunday, who's a writer for the New York Times, and he is not a Christian, but he writes an annual Easter column where he talks to a um, person of faith of some prominence and asks them, "What, what does the resurrection mean to you? And this person said, for me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. Okay, so far. That's much more awesome of a claim than that they put Jesus in a tomb and three days later he wasn't there. Well, isn't that quite similar to the church behind door number one? It's rather dismissive and corrective. Why are these two things mutually exclusive? Why is it not that love is the reason that three days later they found the tomb empty? Why isn't it that the resurrection is a visceral depiction of God's love and of His mercy and of His grace? that it depicts a humanity that is incarcerated by our own choices and our own hubris, set free by love, not in a metaphorical or mythological or mystical sense, but in a real sense, in a way that really applies to your lived lives. You see, the resurrection, friends, is probably the most plain front and center claim that we want to hold on to as a church as we go about being a welcoming and safe community, and that those two things shouldn't be separated. They depend upon one another, and that we want to avoid being either a a doctrinal holding cell that's very orthodox but dead to the world, but also different from those communities that maybe embody the the justice dimension, the ethical dimension, without believing any of it really happened. And we generally talk about those churches as conservative or progressive or liberal. And what I'm suggesting and what I think we try to embody here, and I'll get to Mark in a moment, is that what In Town seeks to be is not something that splits the difference and ends up in the middle. That's boring. We don't want to just be a boring centrist church that 
doesn't really do anything nor offend anyone. What cost is that? Why would you want to sign up for that and give your money and give your life to something as boring as that? We're not standing in in the middle mitigating risk, but what I think we need to do is to reject those categories altogether. The invitation you see here this morning by and because of the resurrection is for all of us to take hold of a new life because Jesus rose to new life. And this matters not only on Easter Sunday, but it matters on Thursday. It matters on Monday. And we've got to figure out how to not just pat ourselves on the back for saying we're a church that believes in the resurrection, but a church that believes in it and therefore moves into hurting people's lives and hurting places in order to try and bring a sense of what the resurrection means in real physical ways. You see, Easter tells us that God has intruded into our world. He has intruded into our hubris. And He doesn't come as a scold. He comes as a Savior. He comes as a Redeemer with a love that's so invigorating and so creative that encountering it will change us individually and as a community. Change us so much that the Bible uses this idea of new life, that something radically happens when you take hold of the resurrection. Easter tells us, you see, even the fourth Sunday of Easter tells us that though humanity may kill the embodiment of God's love, that it can't keep it buried, that it can't keep it dead. And because Jesus is risen not just in story, not just in mythology, not just in the deep recesses of human history, but that He has risen really for you and for me, that it matters. It matters this afternoon. It matters tomorrow. Now, Mark gets at this in a quite a roundabout, strange way, because this is the last chapter of the book. And he says, they said, that is the two women, when they came to the tomb and found this amazing surprise, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is a terrible ending to a gospel book. They were trembling and bewildered, fade to black. This is the Sopranos ending that everyone hated. Tell us the rest of the story. Does Tony survive? Does he get killed? What's going on here? How do I know what to do with my life now that it's over? It seems the early readers of Mark didn't like the ending either because they, you'll notice in your Bible, there's a little notation for the the three of you that brought your Bible this morning. If you go home and you pick up your Bible, there's a little notation. It says the rest of these words are, are not in the original or the oldest manuscripts. Probably meaning that some later editor tacked this on to Mark's story. And if you read what's there, it's like it makes sense. This ties up the loose ends, and it tells us something practically to do. It gives us instruction, and so it makes sense. 
these two Marys who go to the tomb, they have very practical concerns as well. Did you see what they were asking themselves as they were walking? Who's going to roll away the stone? It's a very practical concern, and it's a very strange concern as well, because if they don't know that the stone has been rolled away, it's still sitting there. And how are these two women going to roll it away? They are bringing spices, however. Spices are what you anoint a dead body with. They're a little bit late because it's a couple of days later, but also, what are they going to do with these spices? There's a big stone rolled in the entryway. You see, this gives us a bit of a window into their mental state, perhaps, that they are still confused about what just happened. They're still shocked that their friend, rabbi, their teacher, the supposed Messiah, has been brutally murdered right in front of them. Of course they're shocked. Of course they're confused. Maybe they're not thinking that clearly. Or maybe what Mark wants us to see is that this is a beautiful act of absolutely desperate devotion. It doesn't make a lot of sense on paper, but they go, and they take their spices with them as if expecting a miracle. All these women do at the very end of Mark's gospel, which is probably the oldest, therefore he doesn't know the other gospels are going to be written. He doesn't know how much he should write and leave in so that they can get the whole story. He's writing this ending as if this is the gospel that people are going to be reading. And these women simply are heroic because they choose to put one foot in front of the other, and they walk, and they go to the tomb, desperate. And sometimes that's all that we can do. We all want to have heroic moments in our lives and in our spiritual lives, and I hope that's your hope. But often in the expectation of those things or the hope for those things, we don't do the simple things and just take steps forward and understanding that that is courage, that that can be bold, that that's faith, that those of us that just keep pushing through the layers of confusion and doubt and just keep believing on Thursday, maybe not on Wednesday and maybe not on Tuesday, but we just keep pressing. That's faith, and that's courageous. I quoted Cornell West in the front of your bulletin, and he's one of my heroes, and he says, as a, a Christian, as a radical, I cannot be an optimist. You see, he looks around and he sees the world. He sees his own life. I cannot be an optimist, but I'm a prisoner of hope. What these women find isn't comforting. You would think it would be, and that's maybe how we would originally approach this text. Wow, look at this miracle. Aren't they glad? No, they're terrified. They're scared out of their wits. And chapter 16 seems like such an unsatisfying ending. But you see, sometimes, oftentimes, the place where God wants us is in our place of fear. 
It is keeping walking, keeping going forward when life on paper is no longer making sense, when faith doesn't map onto your life perfectly well, and you keep going. Maybe that's what Mark is hinting at here. And the reason that is, is because in those places, it's that, it's those places where resurrection happens. Resurrection at Easter is a beautiful thing, and it's a grand thing, and appropriately so. But we need resurrection on Thursday. We need resurrection today. Maybe that's your story, and you're sitting here in great pain, and it took you an amount of courage just to show up this morning. And you need resurrection now, at least, at least a symbol of it, a sign of it. Throughout Mark's gospel, he's been telling us stories of the impossible becoming possible. In chapter 2, he tells this paralyzed man, he says, get up and walk. And you can just imagine the story, if it was being filmed, that man probably looked at him like, are you crazy? Like, who do you think you are? But then he stands up and he walks. And then in chapter 3, he tells a man with a shriveled hand, hand to stretch it out. Impossible, right? But the man responds and his hand is restored. And here, he tells these women through the angel and by extension to Peter and the rest of the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Well, this too is impossible because where are the disciples? They're cloistered somewhere, paralyzed by fear. They're not going anywhere. And now the women are equally frightened, the ones who are supposed to go tell the men what to do. They're trembling because they've seen Jesus die. Jesus went to the cross and he was executed. The end. Or is it? Is this a terrible ending to a pretty good gospel so far? Or is it an invitation? Is it not a map for what we are to do, but it is a calling to move without a map? If you did have a Bible, you could turn to chapter 1, and the opening verses of Mark go like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news. You see, Mark is not writing the whole story. There is indeed more to be written. And there will be Matthew and Luke and John and the epistles and all of that. But there's more to be written beyond that. There's more to be written in your life because what is the word that these two women get? He is risen. He is not here. What are you going to do now if you believe that to be true? Or as Jimmy Malone, Sean Connery's character in The Untouchables, 
love how you, what are you prepared to do? That was horrible. I didn't practice that. But what are you prepared to do? He explains the situation with Al Capone, not only the violence, the threat of death, but they can't trust the cops because he's bought off all the cops. Jimmy Malone has been a cop, and he knows all of this, and he just walks a beat because he doesn't know what else to do. And he tells Elliot Ness the story, and he says, now that you know, what are you prepared to do? He is not here. He is risen. So what? You believe that? Fine. What are you prepared to do about it? Isn't Mark inviting us to consider how resurrection might bring hope in our lives in a place that feels impossibly broken and painful and terrifying? And certainly not necessarily the expectation that that resurrection feeling, sense, reality would have immediate quantifiable results that turns the situation 180 degrees because Is that what happened with the Marys? Is that what happened with the disciples? Not at all. But they now moved because they believed he is risen. Some of them moving to their death because they believed it. Isn't Mark suggesting or at least asking us how Jesus' love that refuses to be held down by anything might bring new life into those places that feel like dead ends in your story, places that you've closed the book on and just said, nothing will ever happen in that area. Nothing will ever change. Maybe it's in your own life, or maybe it's your spouse's life, your friend's life, and you've said, I'm just more comfortable living knowing that that will never change. And I don't want to give you false hope. We certainly can't control other people's stories. We don't necessarily have to look with the thought that things will change, but maybe we can be a prisoner to hope in those situations. The resurrection on the fourth Sunday of Easter and during ordinary time and during Advent is about finding life where you expect to find death. It's about finding forgiveness where you expect to find rejection. It's about finding courage where you only have expected and experienced fear. You see, by the time that Mark wrote this gospel, you can expect that the disciples and these two women have been memorialized, they've been valorized. There's some debate upon when it was written. Maybe some of them are still alive, but they are the big people in the church And what does Mark tell him? He almost pulls the rug out of this valorization of these people and said, no, 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 no. It's fine to honor them, but let me tell you what really happened because what really happened was that these women were scared out of their minds. They were terrified. Even Peter, presumably the leader of the church, he was paralyzed. And I think that what we can be comforted by is that even these great men and women of the faith, they lived with fear as a normal part of life. And fear 
if you know yourself at all and are reasonably self-aware, is an ordinary part of all of our lives. It's also an unavoidable part of any real spiritual change, any real choice that leads to new life, because change can be terrifying. The empty tomb startled them. They trembled. They were bewildered. But upon reflection, it changed them. It gave them a new purchase on life. It made the impossible possible. He's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Friends, the resurrection doesn't work in the abstract. It's not just a concept that we hide in our brains and make sure that we don't change our views on it. It's not a metaphor. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to be involved personally with something revolutionary. You see, Jesus gives the invitation and He gives the power, but what did the paralyzed man have to do? He had to stand up. He had to respond. The man with the shriveled hand had to reach out his hand. Mary, the two Marys had to walk. They had to go tell the disciples. The disciples had to leave the room and move into a confusing new world with a lot of darkness, with hope. And in the same way, if you would like your spiritual life to be more than a hobby, to be more than just a Sunday morning affair or maybe an Easter Christmas affair, and I'm not presuming that any of you do, but if you do, if you're looking for that, if you want to see resurrection on a Thursday, you have to get up and walk. You have to decide to put one foot in front of the other, even though you're walking more slowly than your spiritual heroes and maybe by the person beside you. But you just walk. And if you go to Galilee, metaphorically, if you go to Galilee and you meet Jesus, who is it that you encounter? What is it that you encounter? The angels tell these women, go and tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. Why and Peter? Is it because he's obviously the leader, he's the big dog? I don't think that's true. I think not because he's the big dog, but because he was the most infamous failure. He had blown it. When Jesus needed him the most, he cowered and he lied. And what's remarkable about this, because we have these ideas that in the early church, the church used its power to write the stories that it wanted to tell, to make sure that the right story gets out. What's the story that Mark tells? He talks about Peter as a failure. He talks about these men sitting in this room cowering, and who are the brave, courageous heroes or heroines? It's these women. And then they are entrusted to go back and tell, the, tell these male disciples. Is the church consolidating its male power by having these stories written? It's a strange story to tell that that's your hope. He's going before you into Galilee. And Mark doesn't clean up Peter's bio. 
He doesn't clean up his CV and tell us all of the great things about him. He says, go and meet him. Peter went and met him. These women went and met them. And what it means by first is not that Jesus is going to arrive earliest. He'll precede you physically, although that probably happened. This is him going ahead to receive you, to prepare the way, and to recommission them after massive failure. Peter is cowering in fear, and likely more than that, in shame and embarrassment. He's a disgrace, but he wants life to be different, and it seems impossible. And I guess the question practically as we wrap up is, would you go if you were Peter? In your worst failure, you are an absolute disgrace to the band of believers, your community that you belong to, and God shows up. Would you go? Well, you can answer that right now based upon how you deal with failure now. If you're a believer here and you have massive failure and massive disappointment, do you go to God in that moment or do you say, "Mm, he doesn't want to see me right now. Give me a few days and I'll clean up my act. I'll get things better prepared and then I'll pray. Would you go? Because going, you see, for Peter makes him painfully, naked, nakedly aware of what a big screw-up he is, what an impossible failure he is. But at that very same time, as he walks into Galilee, what we are told by the whole story of the Gospels is that what he would have found is not a stern, scolding Jesus, but a Jesus with his arms outstretched and welcoming him with a big smile likely, on his face. And in that moment, you see, and only in that moment, most viscerally, when you understand how much of an impossible failure you are and how much, nonetheless, that God still grants his love to you, can you understand what the resurrection really is all about? Can you understand how unwavering God is in his love? That it can't be extinguished by you messing it up. His, his love can't be extinguished even by death. It may be scary to go. It may be painful to go. But it's in Galilee where Peter, where you can learn that no matter where you find yourself, no matter what your list of failures is, that life is constantly capable of being opened up to newness, to God's creative, revolutionary grace. And you can bring all of yourself there. Your failures, your questions, your incompleteness, your woundedness from previous religious experiences and communities, your shame, your feelings of unfitness, and all the impossibilities of life, you can bring them there. They can be taken to Jesus in Galilee where Resurrection opens up the possibility of hope for some of these terrible, dark things in your lives and in the lives of our city and our world to start being unraveled, to start being made untrue. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would meet us. Mothering God who cares for us as a mother, would you meet us? Would you meet us in the truth of your proclaimed word and your written word? And would that truth cause us to live out that word in courageous ways and bold ways and sometimes in ways that don't feel so much like courage? Just feel like rote, struggling, putting one foot in front of the other and help us not to be ashamed when we are in that moment because it is so much of life. And I pray that we would see in these elements that grace breaks in, that resurrection breaks in, not often through the grand and magnanimous and huge things of life, but through the weak, through the small, through very tangible things that look on the surface to be very unimpressive and uncredential. God, I pray that we would take hold of this meal and that we would expect the impossible to begin to be possible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.